Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Sheep Thrills. Sorry for starting a little late today. I sat down, opened my computer, got everything set up, and then my computer just like literally refused to work and uh, nothing was gonna, nothing was opening. And so that was a little bit disastrous, but here we are. We're hanging out. Uh, it's a beautiful Thursday here in Washington, DC. It's gonna be like 80 degrees. Um, like later this afternoon. It is freezing cold in the studio today, and my cute little spring outfit is uh, not appropriate for the weather in this room right now, so that's not great, but I guess, you know, we continue to ball. Um, so welcome back to do Sheep Thrills. I hope you guys all had a great week. Um, today on Sheep Thrills, it's a very train-heavy episode. We're going to be talking about good trains and evil trains, but about two-thirds of the show will be spent pretty much exclusively talking about trains in some way or another, which is pretty fun, um, especially because next week I'm taking a train to Rhode Island, and we're doing it overnight, and I love a train, so I'm very excited. So we've got trains on the brain, and so it's a, it's a, it's a train-heavy episode of Sheep Thrills. Um, so we're going to be talking about the train derailments that happened in Ohio. We're going to be talking about Joe Biden's recent trip to, kind of surprise trip to Ukraine. Uh, and then we're going to be talking about some assorted political issues that I think we wanted to cover. Um, so lots to discuss, and we're just going to jump right into it. So first, these train derailments that happened in East... I. See, I'm going to call it East Palestine, Ohio, but I think it's pronounced differently. Um, so I'm sorry if I'm wrong about how it's actually pronounced. Um, but there was a train derailment that happened uh, like two weeks ago at this point um, at this small town of East Palestine, Ohio, that's basically right on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. Um, and again, the story started a few weeks ago, but there's been ongoing development since then. Um, and so I thought that now would be a good time to get into it. Um, so basically, train derailed in Ohio and the train was transporting toxic waste materials, um, which ultimately caused a days long inferno. Uh, and the residents have reported health problems and about 3,500 fish have died in Ohio waterways. Um, so this was a pretty significant, you know, human issue, obviously, like, causing issues for the kind of health and safety of the community. And it was also a fairly big environmental catastrophe because now we've got all this toxic waste kind of leaking out into the earth um, in Ohio. And the fact that it's getting into the waterways is also, like, a pretty significant um, issue. Although there has been quite a bit of misinformation going on um, around this story, and there was this one graphic going around that was saying, oh, well, like, if you're in this green area on this map, your water has been affected by this train derailment because the um, toxic waste got into the Ohio River and, like, here's all the places that are now impacted. And that was just wrong. Like, that would, like, the toxic waste didn't make it into this particular river that they were talking about. Um, and so... The actual impact is a lot more localized than people were talking about it online, which is just, you know, it's a good thing to, you know, have some media literacy and not pay attention to everything that you read online. I know that I am guilty of it, um, but whenever there is a situation like this, obviously, like, paying attention to the actual official news that you're getting 
is uh, usually a valuable thing. So, you know, be, be critical of the tweets that you're seeing because people love to cause drama. Um, but anyway, there's so there's a lot of important conversations now happening around this train derailment. Um, so, of course, there's the conversation of how it happened. And then, of course, who's to blame and kind of like what is the aftermath of this going to be like? What is like the reparations process going to look like? for the people and the environment that has been impacted by this derailment. Um, so how did it happen? Um, most people have been blaming, and the federal government and the state governments have been blaming the uh, actual company that was operating the train. Um, and they, because it was a theoretic, like what they are assuming right now, kind of pending um, more official like investigative reports is that there was a mechanical issue with the train itself that caused the derailment to occur. Um, and so they are blaming the company that was operating the train, which is called Norfolk Southern. Um, and they are being treated as the central culprit. So basically saying you didn't check your trains well enough. You did not consider that there were going to be these other issues, and so it's your fault that this train derailed. Um, and so they're generally being held the most accountable. And both the Pennsylvania governor, Josh Shapiro, and the Ohio governor, DeWine, who now I can't remember his first name, but I want to say that it's... You know what? I'm not even going to try because I don't want to say anything wrong. Um, but they've been looking into kind of criminal referrals against them and kind of legal remedies suing the company that was operating the train. And of course, that's just like when the train derailed, they're blaming this company. But they're also blaming the train company and the operator for giving officials, quote, incorrect, inaccurate information, and they refuse to explore or artic articulate alternative courses of action following the wreck. Um, so obviously there was, they, they, the train derailed and they weren't going to help anybody with it. Um, and then that kind of turned their fault into a much more egregious fault, which is probably why they are being treated as so, um, so much at fault now and that's why we'll get into it but they're being required to pay a lot of money in fines and and do a lot of work there um so again is the train company the only one that is to blame um a lot of people are saying i mean at least at the beginning they were like well what is pete Buttigieg has to have to say about this of course because he is he's probably the most front-facing Secretary of Transportation in the world. Why do so many people know his name? Why do so many people know who the Secretary of Transportation is? I think it's hilarious. Because I want to say, the again, if I, I'm, I'm afraid of clicking out of the tab that has my notes because I think that I'll never be able to get back to it, so I can't do my fun little... Actually, I can use this other, other computer that we have here. I'm pretty sure that Elaine... What was she? She was. Okay, so... Um, Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Cho, was the Secretary of Transportation for the last administration. So she was fairly, people knew her as well. But I don't know, I feel like a lot of people know who Pete Buttigieg is. I don't remember anything that she did in those four years. But anyway, maybe, maybe the Secretary of Transportation is a very front-facing role. Who knew? Anyway, um, I should have just left, I'm going to leave this tab open for the next person who's doing a show so they can be like, what? What the heck was Emily talking about? Just leave her up there for, for everyone to see. Um, 
But anyway, so now the question is, was there some kind of infrastructural issue? Was there some kind of regulations issue that meant that um, kind of the federal government was to blame more than this individual company? Um, and basically what it appears what it appears to be is that there was some regulatory issues, but it wasn't something that was directly under Pete Buttigieg's, Pete Buttigieg's control. And of course, there are, you know, with everything, there's not an, whatever, my dad's going to get mad at me for this, but there's not enough regulation on a lot of things. Um, and a lot of regulation is misplaced. So people have been citing a particular set of um, regulations that didn't get passed through a couple of years ago. Um, and the reason that they didn't get passed was because of lobbying from the um, kind of transit lobbyists uh, and like the train lobbyists who didn't want all these additional regulations because they're going to have to spend more money on fixing the trains and fixing the tracks and all of those things. Um, so it's possible that there were additional infrastructural regulatory issues that also played a role in this derailment. Um, but it's not something that we necessarily know for sure. And again, we don't know how to place that blame. And the National Transportation Safety Board is going to be issuing its initial investigative finding this week. And it might actually come out today. It might have already come out. I haven't had a chance to check. Um, but according to those investigators, the report isn't going to give a firm cause nor, quote, draw conclusions. Um, but again, investigators have had have seen surveillance video, and that's public. You can see that online. Um, surveillance video that says that the train wheel bearing was in its final stages of overheat failure moments before the derailment. So that didn't have anything to do with the tracks, but it did have to do with the physical train, um, which is, of course, under the control of Norfolk Severn. Southern. Ooh, I really cannot speak today. Um, so again, this report is probably going to get to the base of was it an infrastructural regulatory issue? Was it an issue with the train itself? Um, what regulations went wrong? And then trying to kind of trace that blame back to whoever is truly at fault. Um, and I think it's probably a combination of things. Again, there's, um, there's, there's always regulations that didn't get passed because of some dark money lobbying, whatnot. Um, and so I'm sure that's part of the conversation. Um, but then again, it's a matter of people not, I mean, if you're, if you're transport, like this is, this is a real crux of the issue that now I'm saying this out loud. Like I want there to be another explanation for this, but if you are transporting toxic waste material through a populated area and you are not spending the money that you actually need to be spending on making sure that the trains that you're putting together are good and are safe, then like, what the heck are you doing? What are you doing? Um, and like, it's absolutely their fault and they should be held liable because even if like, obviously those regulations should be in place, but even if they aren't, you need to have enough common sense to say, oh, we're transporting toxic waste material through populated areas. And even if it was populated, the environment is important. Like what do, whatever, this bothers me so much. But anyway, um, and I think that's part of the reason why the EPA and the federal government has come down so hard on this company. Um, I don't think that they would have 
required Norfolk Southern, I'm going to get into this, but require them to do all that they are requiring them to do without being pretty convinced that they're the ones at the root of the issue. So even saying, okay, so these regulations don't exist, but you understand that there's a certain level of danger that you're pursuing in this, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And so that's why kind of they're coming down so hard. And so this, of course, the, the states are looking into suing the company, and the EPA is also ordering them basically blanket across the board, requiring them to handle and pay for all necessary cleanup. And they passed a legally binding order that's basically like, you are going to do this or you're going to pay triple what it would cost to do it um, if you don't follow through. And so what they're being required to do is identify and clean up all contaminated soil and water resources, reimburse the EPA for cleaning services to be offered to residents and businesses, attend and participate in public meetings at the EPA's um, at the EPA and post information online and pay for the EPA's cost of other work performed under the order, um, including, I, I think I'm going to talk about this, but they, their EPA is offering like free cleaning services to the different um, homes and businesses in the community. And the EPA is going to be required to, or not, excuse me, Norfolk Southern, South, oh my gosh, is Norfolk Southern a tongue twister? Why can I not say it? Um, they are being required to pay for all of those additional services. So you made your bed, now lie in it and pay all of this money to do all of this stuff. Um, and they have the Norfolk, Norfolk Southern, oh boy, oh boy, um, has already released a statement saying that they are prepared to and have a quote responsibility to do what they can to right the wrong. Um, and this is an important quote from that statement. It's, quote, we are going to learn from this terrible accident and work with regulators and elected officials to improve railroad safety. So they are saying, yes, it was our fault, but it's because the regulations aren't up to date. You're transporting toxic waste material. Don't rely on these regulations that you, like, you probably lobbied against yourself. Ugh. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> Don't get me started. Um, I've already started. Also, I'm in charge of the show. I can get started all I want. Sorry for yelling. Um, so again, they're kind of trying to say, yes, we absolutely understand that this was our responsibility. However, let's also not forget that the government is part of this problem as well and that these um, regulations exist for a reason and we were going to work with... Um, work with the government to make sure that these regulations never go off place again. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I was also very interested to hear that there's, like I was when I was first reading this about the story, I was like, oh, are there going to be any kind of reparations for the people who have had their health like pretty strongly impacted by um, this situation, right? Because we have people who are experiencing long-term health issues. Um, that for a while, there was concern, again, that the water was contaminated and that it wasn't going to be safe and healthy. Um, and actually, then I was when I was reading more, Norfolk has stated that they are going to commit millions of dollars worth of financial assistance to families, and they're also going to create a $1 million community assistance fund, uh, maybe assistance fund, among other aid. So they are basically creating a pool of reparations money uh, for kind of lack of a better term to kind of help people with health issues, with rebuilding, with 
kind of some other like environmental things, especially with any land that was affected because there was farmland out there and that's kind of a lot of people's livelihoods. Um, and so they are kind of committing that money to this area, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of, um, I'm not always the most positive person in the world. And like all of this sounds really, really great, but what's going to happen when we stop paying attention to like when this, when this fades out of the headlines, how much is this company actually going to do to continue to follow through on all of their promises? Like, I, I know that they're doing this all right now so that, you know, not exactly people like me because, you know, there are about six people that listen to the show. But, you know, like when when people are talking about, oh, well, they're doing all this great stuff. They're creating this community assistance fund X, Y, Z. Um but as soon as they fade out of the headlines, are they going to continue doing that work because no one's actually going to be there to say, oh, well, they stopped doing this work and they stopped paying out this money. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see kind of what the long term, uh, the long term ramifications are for Nor Norfolk Southern as a company and also like how much work is going to continue to go into this region um, after the cameras leave the area. Um, and just as another little interesting tidbit before we move on, uh, again, there was a lot of conversation about whether or not the water in the community was safe to drink. Um, and kind of as like an interesting photo op, an interesting way of like kind of rebuilding community trust, which is already so low. Um, the governor, DeWine, EPA administrator, Michael Reagan, 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 I don't know and U.S. Representative Bill Johnson, who is the representative for the area, um, all drank water that was poured directly from a faucet in a home in the area. Um, and we're like, no, it's safe. Here we are drinking it. Take pictures, post it online. Like, you don't have to be afraid that these resources are not safe for you to consume. And I think that's a really interesting thing because one of the biggest issues with a situation like this is rebuilding community trust. Um, because there was a lot of misinformation that came out immediately after the situation. People really weren't talking about it. There was not this kind of level of public outrage for like a couple of days um, after this happened. And so, you know, people having elected officials be really active in the community um, and kind of interacting with people directly uh, is going to be a really important way to rebuild that trust in institutions. And I think it's going to be a long time before that trust is is fully rebuilt. And I think this report from whatever the organization was called, uh, the National Transportation Safety Board, is going to be a big part of it. Um, and then also, again, staying active in the community um, is going to be really important for continuing to rebuild that trust as we move into the future. So it'll be interesting to see how that all works out. But that is trains for evil, evil trains. And now we're going to move on to good trains, trains for peace and justice. Um, so President Joe Biden, we've talked about him before. We know him uh, recently did a surprise visit to Ukraine, which was surprising for a lot. of. I mean, surprising for a lot of people because like presidents don't do surprise visits, especially to war zones. It's usually like a pretty... Everyone knows where he's going like a week out in advance because uh, it's like a lot of work to transport a president in a place. Um, but they did a really good job keeping this all a secret. So um, 
yeah, kind of the surprise visit to Ukraine into an active war zone. Um, this marks the first time in modern history that a U.S. leader visited a war zone outside of kind of being with the U.S. military. Um, and it wasn't a it wasn't a war zone that the U.S. military was it was in control of or had authority over. It was or like even like a like a military base or camp like this was he went in with like three or four members of his like typical entourage and like that was it. Um, and of course, Ukraine is they're not U.S. soldiers in Ukraine. Ukraine is not being controlled or operated by the U.S. military in any way. So it's uh, um, it was a very unique situation that when other presidents have gone to war zones, it's been like, let's take this entire entourage of like the U.S. military. And there's there was no risk. Well, I mean, there's always risk, but there was a significant less risk to those presidents versus Joe Biden, um, who, again, was not with his own military. Um, and it was interesting because, again, this was such a vulnerable situation that even though no one in the U.S., no one in Ukraine knew, they did give a heads up to Moscow. And they were like, do not start any nonsense. Do not. Do not bomb Kiev while Joe Biden is there because we will start a nuclear war. Um <laughs> So that was that was interesting. Uh, and it's also interesting that Moscow didn't say anything that they like told Putin, but Putin didn't say anything or do anything about it um, before he visited. I'm not sure what the strategy is there, but I am not an IA person. And I think you can tell that I, I'm interested in it from a domestic politics perspective, but it is important regardless. So again, how did Joe Biden do it? How did he sneak out of the White House and get to Ukraine? So they snuck him out of the White House early in the morning. They said that he was going to Poland, which he technically was, but they didn't put him on Air Force One. They put him on another like the plane for secret missions like this. Not a mission. He's not a secret agent. He's the president of the United States. Um, they then they flew him to Poland, and then he took a 10-hour train ride from Poland to Kiev. He got to spend 20 hours on the train. Joe Biden spent 20 hours on the train, which if you know Joe Biden, you know he's a train guy. And this was, this is trains for good. Because the train, like the, like the equivalent of the um, Secretary of Transportation for Ukraine is on Twitter. And he's been very active on Twitter because everyone knows that Joe Biden loves trains and Joe Biden took a Ukrainian train in and out of Kiev and they called it Rail Force One. Are you kidding me? Rail Force One? That's amazing. That's fantastic. I'm obsessed with that. I am going to post on Instagram the little graphic that they made for Rail Force One, but it's it's the best branding I have ever heard in my life. Rail Force One changed me on a on a chemical level. I love Rail Force One. But anyway, he took Rail Force One into Kiev um, and then was there for a couple of hours visiting the troops, kind of look, talking with uh, Zelensky and doing all of that work. Um, and then and then that so that was until he got to Kiev. That was the 
um, everything was still pretty much completely underground. Uh, nobody knew about it. And then, of course, once he started interacting with the Ukrainian public, that's when things started to leak out, of course, because that was when people started, like, tweeting about it. And they're like, is that Joe Biden? Sure was Joe Biden. Um, so that's when it started to to actually leak out when he was there. Um, even though it was, like, going to leak there eventually, but it was, like, a little bit earlier than they thought. But then again... How can this many people keep a secret like that? I don't know. I love it. Um, but again, he was traveling with a pretty small group of people, including only two journalists. And I think one of them was a photographer. Um, but wow. How do you get picked for that job? One of the two journalists from the U.S. that got to travel with him on the plane, on the train, everywhere. Um, pretty good stuff. And again, kept it a secret for a very long time, which... I don't know. Maybe that's not a good thing because it's not a good thing for presidents to be able to keep secrets. But case or <laughs> whatever. Um, let's see what else do I want to talk about here. So when Zelensky and Biden were walking. Or, OK, this is so strange. I'm sorry. When I was reading this article, I was like, this is I'm sorry that I'm jumping around a little bit. But there's just a couple of things that I want to hit that are not like entirely relevant to the narrative but I still want to talk about like quite a lot when Zelensky and Biden were walking around Kiev an air raid alarm went off and apparently the air raid alarm is voiced by Mark Hamill like it's like Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker like doing a little bit um which is it's so overwhelming and confusing to me like I need to know if they just pulled pulled it from Star Wars or if they um like asked Mark Hamill to do voiceover work or like is Mark Hamill getting paid like is this like common knowledge am I the last person to find out about this I think it's is Star Wars really big in Ukraine or is it just like fighting against the empire like just so strange but anyway that's completely tangential except for the fact that you know, he was, Joe Biden was, if you needed a reminder that Joe Biden was in an active war zone, he is in this completely, um, he's in the city that is basically under siege and air raid alarms are going off. And he's kind of, people are watching him when those air raid alarms are going off. Like he's putting himself in some level of harm, despite the fact that they told Moscow beforehand. And I really don't think that Moscow is going to bomb Kiev while Joe Biden was there because that would be a, a pretty big escalation. Um, but again, I think that it's just a visual, like visually, like rhetorically, a very significant thing to um, consider in terms of what Joe Biden's job was when he was there. Um, so let's talk about what this all means. We have talked about this every week and we will continue to talk about this every week because we're getting to primary season, y'all. Buckle up. Um, but Joe Biden is often running for re-election. He's doing it. He's committing. Um, like we talked about with the State of the Union, the main uphill battle Biden has going for him is the appearance that he's Sleepy Joe, that he's old and crazy and he does not have the energy necessary to run for president again. So with the State of the Union, him like talking back to Republican hecklers um, with a situation like this, where he is putting on those aviators and he is getting on the ground and he is showing physically his support for Ukraine is 
a pretty, again, a very visually important tool. And guess what? It's worked for him. For the first time in months, maybe since the beginning of his term, he has a higher approval rate than disapproval rate. So, like, again, I don't know what happened with the communication strategy behind the scenes um, in the White House over the past year, but their campaign strategy right now, because everything, like, whatever, like, it is official business, but, like, we just, everything is part of the campaign at this point. His, uh, his campaign ability right now is, like, off the charts. Like, he is doing the work, and he is really changing the narrative. Um, and it's been two months of good news, um, or at least a month of good news since the State of the Union, which people are saying was his best speech that he's ever done, followed by, again, just these very, very good visuals. It's good politics. It's good policy. He looks good. He sounds good. Um, I don't know. I just think that right now the White House is kind of hitting its stride. While the Republicans, as we've talked about, and again, we'll continue to talk about, are kind of circling around what it is exactly that they want from 2024 and beyond. And I think that, honestly, Joe Biden is making a very strong case for 2024 right now. Like, I'm skeptical. I'm admittedly very skeptical of the fact that an 80-year-old can and should be president of the United States. However, I see there being a very strong argument. And I think that people are going to start really rallying. And I think, I I just think that that's going to be, that that's the articulation right now. Like he is, I, I I don't know. I, I, I get it. I get it. I understand the argument and I'm starting to buy into the argument that the White House is trying to make. So again, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I love and appreciate them. Good work. Also, again, tangential, but speaking of Joe Biden's vitality or whatever, I hate that, but whatever, he's six feet tall. And I feel like I did know that, like, in my heart of hearts. Um, But I saw a picture of him next to Zelensky. Let's look at how tall Zelensky is. Zelensky. He's 5'7". Okay, so it's like, it was like a pretty significant, like, uh, like height difference there. But I was like, yo, he's tall. That's a tall guy. He's in it to win it. He's doing it. Um, So that's kind of the political ramification uh, kind of on the domestic side. But of course, there's also a pretty significant um, reaction in terms of like the larger scope of the war. Um, And we haven't really been talking about it as much on this show, mostly because I am foreign policy is not my bag and I am admitting that but of course important to kind of talk about where it stands now that even though a year ago when this was first starting up we kind of thought Ukraine is severely outmatched without the influence of the U.S. and the rest of NATO and the West um, they're just going to get kind of wiped out like I don't think that people thought that it was going to be um, that long And I don't think that they thought that Russia was going to blow it as much as they're blowing it. Um, But they are. And right now, because of the pretty big arsenal of weapons that Ukraine has to their advantage right now, um, they are really benefiting pretty significantly from those weapons, from that arsenal, and they're really able to fight back. And now kind of both countries are looking to go on the offensive. 
and having this and it is like it is a symbolic rhetorical sim- like thing of having Joe Biden standing in the war zone talking in Ukraine about the war but it's also like there's there's an importance of symbols and there's a value to symbols and that's why we pay attention to them that's why we talk about them and this one is is fairly significant and it is going to do a lot to kind of change the tide of the war um especially Joe Biden after he was done in Ukraine he met with other NATO leaders in Poland and you know saying on this national stage with all of this national attention if Russia invades any NATO country like we will have their back Russia is not going to win in Ukraine like it's all of these things all this very firm passionate language and then physically being there is really important for you know Russia's kind of isolation in this war and they've been courting China and all that kind of stuff but there's not as much China can do necessarily than this kind of the rest of the world rallying around Ukraine rallying around these um kind of eastern european countries um so anyway it's very interesting and um biden's direct involvement is an important thing so that's that's kind of what i want to cover there i also wanted to talk about speaking of this war very briefly wanted to talk about so you know we're in washington dc i live in washington dc i see a different protest every other day um but i was walking on the mall this weekend as you do and i'm walking past the lincoln and there's like the like the scaffolding set up for some kind of like rally or something and there's like a very weird amalgamation of signs like usually when you walk past a group of people with signs and flags you like know what they're talking about but i was looking and i was reading them and i was like i legitimately have no idea what you guys are talking about like what's your mission here so then i'm walking i'm walking back home um and like that's when it started so i stop and i listen a little bit because you know i'm a journalist i have an inquisitive mind or whatever and it turns out that it was a rage against the war machine rally which is at, appears to me to be basically like a pretty far left like peace through development kind of crowd which i tend to agree with but there were a lot of russian flags at this rally um and the general gist was that we shouldn't have gotten involved financially in this war and that we're feeding into this like you know corporate war machine and who cares about like the, the, the no one cares about the common people etc cetera, etc cetera. and this was like a real quote it was like it was there like the woman's was like do you really expect us to believe that Vladimir Putin woke up one day and just decided to invade Ukraine? And I was sitting there I was like that 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 seems to ignore like decades worth of like foreign affairs in that region of the world. Like it, it, he hadn't he didn't just decide one day. This has been brewing since the Cold War. Like this is this is not a the, the relationship between Ukraine and Russia is not a new thing. Like th- th- this has been brewing since the Cold War and then it's been extra brewing since 2014. Like it was not an overnight thing. What are you talking about? Um but anyway, I just thought that that was very funny. Uh and it's also just interesting to consider the 
kind of small subsection of people that are really loudly anti-involvement in Ukraine. And I think that there's a, there's like the far left, it's, you know, horseshoe theory where the farther left you go, it then becomes far right, whatever. Whether or not you agree with it, this is kind of one of those situations where you're like, hmm, is horseshoe theory right? Um, But people on the very far left are saying, we shouldn't get involved financially because what are we doing kind of fighting in this war and feeding into this, again, the war machine that has no um, care for the, the dignity of human life, which is like true, but whatever. And then you get all the way around to the far right and they're saying, oh, well, we shouldn't be getting involved in this war because um, of like, I don't know, economic responsibility or something. I don't know what the people say. But again, it gets all the way back around that there's people on the very, very far left, not so much in Congress, but around, and people on the very far right in Congress, outside of Congress, who are agreed in their disagreement um, of involvement in this war. Uh, And I just think, I don't think it's a statistically significant portion of people, but it is an interesting kind of subsection of the population. but again, Biden's Biden going to Ukraine was a good thing for him policy-wise and politically. We can see that because his, his approval rating is 49%. That's crazy. Dark Brandon rises again. He continues to rise. Joe Biden 2024, Joe Biden 2028, Joe Biden forever. I did not say that. That was, that was a joke. That was a funny joke. Do not take that out of context, please. Anyway. Okay, we are moving on. This has been a dense episode, y'all. Okay, some rapid-fire politics, politics-adjacent stories. First one is very sad for me personally, because if you know me, you know that I am a Jimmy Carter stan. I love Jimmy Carter. That is that is the world's grandpa. I love him. But the Carter Foundation announced this weekend that he is being put on hospice care in his home after being in and out of the hospital over the past few months. Um, So it's kind of, unfortunately, the beginning of the end for Jimmy Carter, who has lived a very long, very notable, um, kind of amazing life. Um, And so, you know, kind of want to talk a little bit about people reflecting on his presidency, reflecting on his legacy, um, and what kind of his legacy means for our country and as, as it stands. And, you know, one notable, one of a notable take that I did see is despite the fact that he had a kind of complicated presidency and people like him and don't like him for, for certain reasons because of his presidency, he's probably the only president that you can just pick a normal person off the street and say, What has Jimmy Carter done since being president? Like, people actually know what he's been doing, uh, and they know what his foundation actually does, and I think that's something that's um, fairly unique for a former president. And his legacy is not so much his presidency, but all of the good work that he has done since that. And again, I am a little bit of a Jimmy Carter fan, as I said, so I'm a little emotional about it. Um, But I did read a really interesting op-ed in the New York Times Um, by his biographer and I thought that it was interesting because he really said this guy was this guy was pretty tough he was a southern liberal who was completely outspoken about racism Um, his first address as governor of Georgia talked about ending racial discrimination Um, 
he had also a very consequential term in office. We think a lot about the bad stuff, but he also uh, oversaw the Camp David peace accords between Egypt and Israel. He oversaw the SALT II arms control agreement, um, the normalization of diplomatic and trade relationships with China, immigration reform. He emphasized human rights in foreign policy. He also was talking about regulations. We always circle back. Um, he implemented regulations on for the airline industry, for natural gas, seat belts. He put solar panels on the White House. Um, like he was a he, he oversaw a lot of really important stuff. And like ultimately his 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 biggest crime during his presidency was just not structuring his White House the right way. Um, he was maybe not prepared for that level of scrutiny and that level of politics and he didn't know how to maybe necessarily deal with it in the best way um but if he had organized his white house in a different way i think that we could be talking about his presidential legacy in a in a far more significant way um even though he did a lot of really important stuff in those four years uh and you know we'll, we'll also we'll be continuing we've been reflecting and deconstructing this presidency for a long time especially in light of his kind of post-presidential career. Um, but I do think it's very interesting. And this one quote from this article really stuck out to me. It was, if I once believed that Mr. Carter was the only president to use the White House as a stepping stone to greater things, I see now that the past 43 years have really been an extension of what he thought as his unfinished presidency. And boy, did he do it. He is such a significant and important person. And I love Jimmy Carter, and I'm really sad that he is, um, you know, you know, he lived a long, good life, very, very full life, but it's still sad when, when those kinds of people kind of leave the world. So anyway, let's do this. Should I do this now? I'm going to do it at the end. I found a, a cute little TikTok singing a cute little song about Jimmy Carter, and so I'm going to play it at the end, but now one one and a half other stories if I can get to the last one. But I also want to talk about John Fetterman. Um, so John Fetterman is the new senator from Pennsylvania that has been hospitalized pa twice in the past several weeks. Um, one for potential new issues related to the stroke that he had on the campaign trail, like right before, like days before the primary, the day after the primary, the day of the primary, right around there. Um, and then this other this other hospitalization um, more recently uh, had to do with clinical depression. And he is going to get inpatient, inpatient care for clinical depression um, that he apparently has been suffering on and off with for years. Um, and this, I honestly believe, is one of the braver things a member of Congress has ever done. Um, there's so much conversation on and off the hill about destigmatizing mental health, especially for men, like empowering men to talk about their mental health and to kind of deal with the issues that they face in this kind of society where this like kind of toxic masculinity makes it impossible for men to talk about their feelings. And so to see a person in a leadership position acknowledge the fact that they are struggling with their mental health and then reaching out and getting help for it um, is something that I truly think is is very, very brave. And I think normalizing this kind of mental health on a on a larger scale is really important as well, because despite the fact what the, despite what people 
will say, and will always say, mental health issues do not disqualify you from public office. They do not make you an unfit leader. They do not make you a worse person in any way. And so to say, to stand up and say, I am a leader, but also I need this kind of help. And I struggle with these issues and I'm going to deal with them. Because I'm sure that there are a million CEOs and, pres- and you know, presidential organization presidents and members of Congress who deal with mental health issues and they just don't talk about them publicly because they're afraid of that backlash. Uh, and I think that it's really, really important that um, we're, we're talking about them now and on this national stage. Um, and it, it's, it's not something that disqualifies you from public office and it shouldn't disqualify you from public office um, in the same way like a physical disability shouldn't disqualify you from public office. Um, because it doesn't it doesn't change the way that you're that you're thinking or operating like you can still be thoughtful and considerate and an important leader if you struggle with depression or anxiety uh, and I think that that's a, a, a really important thing I also think that there's a lot of of course whatever a lot of hypocrisy um, within kind of that like mental men's mental health um, advocacy community because people love to cherry pick when mental health is allowed to be discussed. So of course, in terms of um, like school shooters, stuff like that. Oh, well, you know, we need to be talking about mental health. We don't need to be taking away their guns. We need to be talking about mental health. But then of course, when we start to have a conversation about mental health, um, people don't want to discuss it. And they don't think that John Fetterman should be able to get help and still be a member of Congress, which is a silly thing to think, and I don't like it. Um, and so it's all just, you know, hypocrisy and cherry picking and the, the same old, same old situation that we will continue to circle around with. Um, so, of course, this is a developing story, so it's something we'll continue to talk about. But I, you know, am, am proud of John Fetterman. He doesn't care what I think about him, I'm sure. Um, but I think that it's a, it was a really brave thing for him to do. And all of the different members of Congress who have come out and have also said, yeah, this is also something that I struggle with, um, is, a, is, a, is a really cool and powerful thing. And I think that normalizing mental health and, and, and acknowledging the fact that people with mental health issues can still be effective and equal leaders is a really important and valuable thing. And I, I, you know, I am proud of him for doing it and I'm proud of him for getting the help that he needs. Um, so John, if you're listening, we're in your corner. Okay. Let's say one last thing I want to talk about, um, which is kind of our little kooky, kooky political story of the week, aside from the TikTok that I'm going to play for y'all. Um, is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's back. She's always here. Um, She recently tweeted that we need a, quote, national divorce of blue and red states. So what do y'all think a national divorce is? Think she was advocating for a civil war? Think she was advocating for secession? That's what I think she was saying. Um, So here are the two sticking points of that. One is she lives in a blue state. Georgia is a blue state as it stands. Two, how do you advocate for secession on like an official channel and not get like 
like honestly if this happened 15 years ago she would be censured she would get all of her committee assignments stripped away like she like stop talking why can't um kevin mccarthy get her to stop talking I, it's just embarrassing it's embarrassing for her it's embarrassing for all of us i don't like it one bit um so there just continue to be no consequences for people who are advocating for treason um but anyway we need it we need a national divorce from marjorie taylor green potentially uh but anyway just the whole conversation about that tweet is such nonsense and it bothers me but it's something that was stuck in my brain all week so i decided to talk about it Whew. but boy oh boy that is pretty much all i wanted to talk about today i kind of got through it a little faster than i thought i was going to do um but i'm gonna play this little tiktok for you as a little uh oh well maybe i will um no stop as a little close out today um it's cute it's just about jimmy carter it's just a goofy little tiktok i'm gonna play it for you guys um thank you guys so much for listening i hope you have a great week um enjoy this awesome weather today um always a lot to talk about things always changing and developing um but always excited about what is to come so i'm gonna play this for you i'm gonna let y'all go have an amazing week and i will talk to y'all next time the country's about to be in mourning he's in hospice that is our warning the time is now as a nation we must prepare must prepare whether you're on the left or right side it's important to look on the bright side he led a life well lived let's show his family that we care that we care lower your flag lower your flag in honor of jimmy carter lower your flag lower your flag the president and peanut farmer He brought Israel and Egypt together at Camp David to come to terms. Lower your flag. Lower your flag. In honor of Jimmy Carter.